the Melbourne AA Steps Weekend 2009. Here's Lillian, sharing at the Friday night meeting. Yeah, my name is Lillian and I'm an alcoholic. I'm sober by the grace of God and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm also healthily nervous. Somebody said to me before, are you really nervous? I said, of course I am. Uh, and that's the spirit in me working. And hopefully I won't come over as cocky and know all the answers. Because I haven't come here with watertight uh, um, formulas or answers. This is about a journey. And it's about interiority. It's about the opposite of society. It's not about exteriority and just, you know, mouthing off and looking good and that and things and etc. But I better not go into a sermon on that one. Um, you know, the Buddhists say you don't have to search for truth, you only have to give up your opinions. And I have opinions all of the time, and that's one of them. But anyway, I've come here, and, um, you know, being the, I guess, speaker is a bit like the first um, speaker. It's You haven't quite got the charge. And um, I'm a person who um, was not only intoxicated by the alcohol, I was intoxicated by the atmosphere that surrounded alcoholic intake. And I drank with loonies and heretics and I sought people out who were similar, which is why I told Barb ten years ago she was my sister. (laughs) But um, I'm I'm sorry to tell you, Barb, I've moved on. (laughs) I I couldn't understand my insanity. It was driving me crazy. (laughs) And when it gets to that point, I've got to do something about me. But, you know... I came here after nearly 20 years of drinking, 90 and a half years of drinking. I remember my first drink because it picked me up and I remember the last one because it put me down. And in between were all those mad stages, the glad stages, the sad stages. And I love the mad stages and I love the glad stages. That's why I went back for more. That's why I drank for so long. And yet I've had people say to me, oh, you really didn't, wouldn't have enjoyed them because, you know, um, they were negative. They brought you to Alcoholics Anonymous and I thought... I'm just glad I didn't drink with you, darling. But anyway, um, yeah, I was intoxicated by, you know, um, the atmosphere and the alcohol. And um, I now know today that I was actually searching for the spirit within, but I didn't know it at the time. What happened was when I took to alcohol is that I actually um, got the distilled spirit, not the instilled spirit. And I did that over and over and over again. And I searched for answers outside of myself. And uh, uh, and the more I searched outside, the worse I got. And um, so I came here not because I actually wanted to give up drinking, but because I was hurting intensely inside. And I've heard it put that I was suffering from gangrene of the soul, which is my alcoholism. And um, I was given the gift of desperation. On Sunday, the 15th of August, 1982... I woke up with the partner, the man in my life, my partner, and I always had a man in my life because I needed a prop, a prop and um, somebody to abuse and to blame. And he said to me, he said, do you remember what you said and did last night? And I said, no, I don't actually. And I knew he was really angry with me. And he said, well, I want you out of my life and out of my house right this moment. And I knew that there was something drastically wrong. Interestingly, I'd been to AA... Um, this was in August 1982. It was Sunday the 15th of August, I remember, because what I thought was actually the end was the beginning, and it will, it's a day I'll never forget. But I'd been to AA six weeks prior to that, 
in and out, you know, one meeting a week, or one meeting a week makes you weak. Knew it all. Told other people in the pub how to sober up. You can do it one day at a time, all this type of thing, you know. And, uh, you know, being the expert and the, the big noter and, can I say it, the bullshit artist? But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I look back now and I think, oh, gosh. You know, I heard a guy say in Melbourne that when he first came to AA, he was so far up himself, the view was absolutely magnificent. <laughs> and, gee, I related to that. I thought, yeah. You know, I look back and I, I just cringe, you know. And it was interesting because um, the reason I got to AA and God works in not so mysterious ways at times, but I believe that everything happens for a purpose. I didn't come here a minute too early and I didn't come here a minute too late. And um, I actually remembered Alcoholics Anonymous because I was actually at a party with my partner's with my partner and his friend and his friend had been to AA and he said you're an alcoholic Lillian and nobody but nobody called me an alcoholic how dare you call me an alcoholic they live they're people who live in parklands and drink methylated spirits and uh, I'm not knocking that because that's I got an identification from those knockabout guys when I came here because they because of their wonderful simplicity and I'm talking about spiritual simplicity I'm not talking about intellectual simplicity the ability to call a spade a spade. And uh, this guy said to me, um, you're an alcoholic. And I said to him jokingly, I said, you're an alcoholic. He said, you should go to AA. And he said, um, you should go to AA. It will do you good. And Broken Hill Jack said, you know, the subconscious never misses a thing. And it came back to me six weeks later. And I subsequently found out but that when he went to AA, he thought everybody was intellectual pygmies and it wouldn't work for him, so he must have thought I was one because he advised me to go to AA. But I'm actually glad, you know, in that sense, because this is not about the intellect. It's about a journey from the head to the heart. It's about a transformation process and it's about letting go of a lot of those old ideas which is externally based. So I came here hurting intensely inside. I felt really suicidal. I even felt homicidal. I put that man on my mental hit list and I thought, you know, how dare he leave me? Nobody leaves me. I tell them when to go. And, um, and when I came here, I subsequently discovered through working through the steps and looking at my own defects of character and shining the demons, the light on my own demons and not other people's. So I subsequently discovered that, you know, all these defects and things like that and the ego-driven, manic, you know, oh, just madness of it all. And so, you know, I came here, as I said, because I was hurting intensely inside and um, just reflecting this week on what I would say on hopefully from the heart and not from the head um, and not to prescribe. Somebody asked me tonight, did I have a theme? And I said, no, I don't really like to be confined by things. I just want the spirit, you know, to share it in terms of the spirit with you and to roam and ruminate and where that takes me. And um, I came here and they say I'd rather see a sermon than hear one. And I actually saw sermons in the beginning of my sobriety. My first year sobriety was probably one of the best because I discovered this fellowship that had this atmosphere and it had this honesty and these people 
and there's a guy called Tall Terry in AA um, in Adelaide. He doesn't come anymore. But he got up, I think, at my second and third meeting or whatever, and uh, when I was just really intensely hurting inside. and He spoke to my condition because he said, when I drink, I feel 10 foot tall and bulletproof. I thought, wow, do you feel like that? That's the way I feel. And he was this tall white male. And I thought, wow, you don't look like me and you probably don't live like me, but you feel like me. And I was hooked on the emotions. And I've loved ever since the spiritual courage you can really, of people who can really say how they feel and call a spade a spade and say, you know, hey, I haven't got it all together. I mean, I just nearly went into a lather of sweat over, you know, thinking about this speaking assignment this week. I just had to let it go because the moment I thought about it, you know, because perfection leads to procrastination and paralysis, you know, and I just have to let it go because... I think I'd love them to remember me forever, you know, and say, oh, you know, bring her back next year. Isn't she brilliant, you know? She might be up herself, but she's so spiritual. <laughs> oh, thanks for laughing with me. I'll tell you what, it just loosens me up. You know, I was enrolled in a PhD in Melbourne University. I gave it up because it was too anal retentive for me. Um, uh, her is to be shared, not analysed. And um, I thought, well, you know... Um, I'm still going to write a book. It was on Aboriginal humour. I'm still going to write a book on it and I'm going to call it On My Way to My PhD. I nearly lost my sense of humour. <laughs> and I need to come here and I need to be able to laugh at myself because, you know, and to screw up and to say I don't have the answers, you know, and I don't come with watertight formulas. I can only share my experience, strength and hope. And it's been a grand and abundant journey in many ways. And so I came here and I saw people, including the woman I was to ultimately asked to be my sponsor, um... That, you know, that they represented or reflected something to me. And I thought, wow, yes, I want what you have. I mean, I can't specifically have their sobriety, but I can have something similar. And they were, for want of a better word, um, yes, sermons for me along the way. And I was just starting out with these toddler steps. And um, I've remembered things that people said to me, older members in Adelaide in those early days. And the first meeting I ever went to, was in Norwood in June of 1982. And as I said, I didn't get sober till August of 1982. Uh, old Jimmy O.C., who subsequently passed on, said to me that the alcohol is in the bottle, Lillian, the isms in us. And that kind of made sense to me. Because I tried on many occasions to do without alcohol and I just went stir-crazy. I just felt homicidal and suicidal, you know. I really identified with what Dennis Hopper once said. He said, you know, there are days when I have, I go with inches of being a serial killer, you know. I could really relate to that. And it's good to admit that because um, in my first year of sobriety, I said to an ex-Jesuit priest that I used to work with, I said, you know, I have so much ven murderous venom in me that I could actually kill somebody unpremeditated. And he said, that's terrific that you can own that. He said, because once you own it, you'll never do it. He said, what worries me is the people who walk around it who are so pious and perfect and say, I'm not capable of that. And I realised then that we're all dysfunctional. It just depends on what degree or level and how we act on that, you know. And once I own it, it kind of takes the power away from it. And I heard people talk with spiritual courage, I believe, because... Um, 
you know, the steps essentially about owning our own defects, admit, admitting to God, to another per, person, and particularly to ourselves, that I'm actually capable of this. This is who I am, and certainly who I had become in my drinking. You know, I'm, I uh, used to say I was born a head tripper, but I actually wasn't born a head tripper. I actually acquired that through bad habits of thinking. And I soon discovered within my first six months when I came down with such a thud after having this honeymoon period of finding these people who were just getting on with their life and seemingly enjoying it and sober and some of them had been around for ages and they had a, a joy of life about them that I wanted. And I was just talking to David before because I heard him say in Melbourne, and this really stuck, you know, you hear people speak to your condition and he said, you know, the foolish man pursues pleasure, the wise man pursues joy. And it comes from the Upanishads, you know. And it's universal truth I hear here. And that's what I need to hear. I was at the contact centre this afternoon and I was listening to Tom and he was talking about fellow truth seekers. You know, I had to find a truth about myself. And I used to love Big Kev here when he used to talk. He said, you know what, is it the truth or set you free but first of all it will really really piss you off <laughs> and I thought yeah you know to be told that I'm not this you know brilliant angelic wonderful wise and um and I was always looking for excuses to explain my drinking there was a young woman there today at the contact center it was just wonderful to hear her because I would need one other person to know that I'm not terminally unique that I'm not alone and even if I reach one person tonight I've actually done my job I don't have to reach everyone um, and she was talking today about wanting to be famous and win the book prize in writing and I said to her after, you know, when I was drinking I just wanted to be famous, I was waiting to be discovered, you know. And the drunker I got, the more millions of books I've sold in my head. And I was talking away, uh, turning away all the people who, um, you know, my fans, and all the people who defended me. Now I remember, you know, 10 years ago at 10th of June 1983 or something at exactly 10.10am 10, and 30 seconds in the morning when you offended me so I won't sign my book for you and all this type of thing and all this, you know, the theatre between the ears that I've heard from people. And I thought, you know, and I thought, wow, isn't it wonderful that there's one other person that thinks and feels the way I do, you know? And, um, yeah, so that's such a relief, you know, uh, to know that I'm actually not mad I'm just out of whack and uh, I heard Mervyn Adelaide talk recently and he's been around about five years more than me and he said you know when I was drinking I was just crazy he said today I'm just silly you know and he said I do silly things and that and things but I don't do crazy things anymore but I heard people talking about this you know and that fame was external so I identified with all the drunken authors like you know um, Oscar Wilde and Brendan Bean and Dylan Thomas and things like that and I think, oh, you know, um, yeah, God, all right. <laughs> um, and, you know, and I used to think if I was famous, I'd have dramatic license. They would say, there goes Lily and she's drunk again, but with such, such brilliance, it's understandable, you know. <laughs> and I'd have a reason. And, and, you know, this is all really just being up yourself, you know. It's, and it's all about, you know, who do, do you know who I, uh, who I am, you know. And... Um, and it's really about who, do you know who I th think I am, actually? <laughs> and I heard a guy in Melbourne say, you know, I love Alcoholics Anonymous because it's the only place I hear me explain to me, you know? And that's brilliant. 
And I was only talking to the woman who picked me up at the airport today, and I was saying that, you know, it's that thinking. See, I don't deal with drinking. I've recovered from alcohol, but I haven't recovered from myself. I deal daily with the isms, the demons and that things, which, you know, that's the eternal vigilance. That's the journey, and it's never-ending. And it comes up in different forms. And even this morning when I went to the airport, you know, um, I was in a line, and that line there was getting served, and that line wasn't getting... And there was getting served, and, of course, I noticed it, you know, and it seemed like, you know, 300 hours, probably three seconds or something, three minutes, but... The woman in front was on the telephone and she was doing something with the computer and I thought, hey, you know, what's going on here? And things and um, you know, I could start, I could feel myself lathering up for a resentment, you know, and it's a bit like, I don't know, like, I'm actually not responsible for my first, first thought, but I am for entertaining it, you know? It's only when I run with it, I ruminate on it, I milk it for all it's worth and then I'm, you know, either back in the past or I'm in the future or something or I'm about to kill somebody on the spot, you know? So, um, but I'm very much aware of my thinking today. And as I said, I came here because I was hurting intensely inside. And I soon discovered after first six, the first six months when I went through a huge honeymoon period that I would actually have to do more than physically stopping drinking. Because if it was not about, if it was only about physically stopping drinking, it would say, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and we stopped drinking. End of story. Go home. But, you know, I realised I would have to do something about my thinking. You know, time has allowed me to introduce myself to myself. And I understand, I think that thought is the most important thing in life. You know, when I was at high school many moons ago, I went back... Actually, after four years of working, I left um, junior high school and I went back to do my matriculation. And I did um, Hamlet Shakespeare, and there was a wonderful line in it which said, I could be bound in a nutshell, yet count myself king of infinite space were it not for my thoughts. And, you know, I could never understand that. I thought, you know, this guy's a dickhead. <laughs> what does he mean? You know, I could be out. And this woman that was like my like a second mum, this English woman, she used to love Shakespeare, she say, she used to say that, you know, it's all about our thought, our thinking. And I thought, no, it's not about my thinking, it's about their thinking, you know. If only they do what I want them to, you know. They're the problem. It's always outside of myself. And I adopted that, um, that um, I just ran with that. And so I had this habitual thinking, which, I don't know, just was corrosive. And, um, of course, you know, then when I went to uni and things like that, I, um, you know, I got into Marxism, Leninism, Communism, Socialism, Trotskyism, and Alcoholism. You know, it all went together. <laughs> and, you know, I was a raging revolutionary in my head, at least, you know, if not in, in an armchair. And I remember my first... Um, I remember my first semester I went home and, um, you know, I regarded my parents as just bushies and hicks by them. By then they were part of the problem, not the solution, and they needed to be politically educated. And I said something to my mother one morning and that thing, and she said, you know, Lillian, she just looked at me and she said, I don't know what they teach at university, but it certainly isn't manners. <laughs> and it was like the equivalent of a good slap in the face, and I remember that to this day. And, you know, I, that is what I needed to wake me up to me. 
And so I've had a lot of awakenings in many ways um, along the way, not just when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, but when I, um, you know, before. And um, I've always had people uh, placed in my path that have actually afforded me their generosity and their, um, yeah, and their grace and told me things. And at the time, it never meant anything to me. But that's the beauty of the journey. You know, sometimes you may not find the answer at the time, but you do in time. And sometimes seeds of thought are sown. But um, just to get back to my, you know, what it was like and that and things. In that first six months, I thought, when I went to the meeting, that first meeting in Norwood in June of 1982, I'll just come back to my first meeting. There were two things I really hated in that room when I first met there. And I thought, oh, Jimmy O.C. took me. And of course, I blamed him. Um, there was the word God. And they said, this isn't a, re- a religious program, it's a spiritual one. I thought, well, what's God doing here, you know? And um, the only person I knew that in, my, in the room that night was this woman, who, this lawyer who defended me on a DUI charge, for which I got thrown in jail overnight, a 15 months of suspension and a $400 fine. And when she, you know, I just hated her guts because she never got me off that. Uh, it was her fault. I blamed her. Not the fact that I had a, a big, you know, uh, reading or anything like that. It was her fault. And I thought, well, if she's an alcoholic, I don't want to be like her, you know. I don't want to be one. But things change. And um, the steps gradually came into my life because I admitted I was powerless over alcohol. But I hadn't actually um, admitted that my life had become unmanageable. And that's about emotional manageability for me. Because I thought, well, I've done this, I've done that, and things, you know, walk through AA with a couple of degrees, but as I heard on a tape, you know, thermometers have got degrees, you know, where they shove them from time to time. <laughs> and you have to do the same, you know, if you want to actually uh, have a journey of, from the head to the heart. Because I can intellectualise, I can paralyse, I can analyse, I can do, you know. And that's what I did in the first six months. I said, okay, God, who are you then? Reveal yourself. Are you black or white? Are you male or female? Who are you? And all this stuff. And I found out subsequently, actually, it's okay to talk to God like that. You don't get struck down by lightning or anything like that. You know, God's gracious. The grace of God is uh, spiritual, you know. And um, I said to my sponsor, or the woman who was about to become a sponsor, I said, I can't take this God bit. bit. She said, well, pray with clenched teeth even if you feel like a hypocrite. Just do it. She said, it's like exercise, physical exercise. You don't have to like it. But if you do it, you'll get results. And so that's what I did. And then pain came into my life, this terrible pain. And I found out, you know, that no human power could have relieved my alcoholism, but God could and would if he were sought. And this was slowly unfolding. And that's what I think it is. For me, the steps are the signposts for life. They're kind of like, you know, they point out and they're unfolding. And to me, they're they're qualitative, not quantitative. You know, I don't have to do them in a certain time. I don't have to tick them off. To me, it's about the letter of the law rather than uh, the spirit of the law rather than the letter of it. And um, yeah, and I did a first, um, fourth step when I was um, about eight months sober. I was going up to the AA convention in Brisbane in 1983, and old Raucus Dick and some of the older members in Melbourne would know him. He was Broken Hill Jack's brother. Said I can arrange for you to do a fifth trip with the Christian brother. And that was really interesting to look at my own defects of character. 
you know, because the steps to me are about essentially, you know, in the wonderful words of Alanon, to know me, to free me, and to be me, and to look at my own baggage and bondage that I, you know, and to have freedom of bondage for myself because I didn't realise how much baggage I had, you know, and still have, and how I could carry on. It's just amazing, and um, so uh, you know, it's been a, it's been a time walk in one sense and a, a slow process. It's been more a qualitative one, but um, because I was hurting intensely inside pain, watched the touchstone of progress and I just knew I had to do more than stopping physically drinking. And I had to look at my thinking and that's what's happened along the way. And I've loved it and um, because as I said, it's allowed me to introduce myself to myself. I'm just... I've got time? All right, okay. Okay. <laughs> I thought you were looking at your watch. Asking, asking me to get off stage. I'm just starting to get moving. <laughs> Intoxicated, actually. You know, it's really good, actually. Uh, and to just to, just to be able to, you know, stand here and say, you know, this is me, warts and all, and that and things. And um, um, you're doing that fourth step. I looked at. Uh, yeah, this is yet again how the grace of God works. The hand of God isn't at all. I came across an older man and he said, you know, when you do a fourth step, your first fourth step learning, he said, make sure it's fearless and not fearful. He said, because a lot of people whip themselves on that. He said, it's got to be balanced, you know, because I know today that, you know, I have the Madonna and the whore in me and the bitch and the angel, you know, and I can concentrate on one or the other. But, you know, on the, it's not all negative and it's not all doom and gloom. And it's like um, Barbara said, you know, they're actually easy. Uh, I thought it was going to be scary and it's, I suppose I had a kind of a, I don't know, well it was in, in my own thinking so I can't blame anybody, I was going to say almost like I'd, I thought it had to be, you know, for want of a better word, um, I'd had a bad experience with organised religion and I thought, you know, this will be about getting down and confessing and saying I'll never do it again, whip me, whip me, whip me type thing and whatever and I've actually found it to be incredibly liberating uh, rather than innovating but it's a constant process and um, certainly, you know, coming to the idea of a God of my understanding has taken time and um, that's why I think time is important and I know that it's not just about the quantitative, it has to be about the qualitative and um, I've made many mistakes in my sobriety but they say the only mistakes you won't make are the ones you don't learn from and um, they say also that secrets keep us sick. And through revealing my, you know, um, through a fifth step, revealing myself to, you know, not only God but to another person, I can say this is me, eh? and it's a beginning. And because I'm the type of person who too, and I think I'm, there's a lot of alkies who are like that, that I could actually be my own worst judge and executioner. And I can whip myself and uh, if I don't do it perfect or whatever and that and things. And... and I think that the steps are a constant process. Um, as I said, they're not, just not a quantitative ticket off and it's a, I've reached the destination. And there are incidents like this this morning, you know, with a, just little things like that can send me off, you know, stir crazy and then things. And I recognise that it's in me, it's not actually in the other person. And um, what else can I say? You know, um, it, it, it's been a kind of like... Just reflecting on this morning, um, 
this idea of God consciousness, because I was born with that. I know that today. And I rejected it in the early days. But um, I want to say that after 26 and a half years of um, sobriety, and I'm not knocking people who do this, I've actually never been on my knees in sobriety. For me, this is the grace and generosity of this God because um, you don't get punished if you don't do that. You know, it's not about rituals and rules and regulations. I talk to my God like a mate. And, you know, in the early days I used to tell him, you know, I'd get really angry with God and I'd say, well, you can, you know, F off like the rest of them too. I've had you, you know, and that type of thing. And people say, oh, you can't talk to God like that. And I say, yeah, you can, you know, you can actually talk to God. I don't want to be constricted or limited and I don't want to have a God of lack or limitation either in that sense. And I actually, um, oh, I don't know, just, you know, the sheer madness and all that, um, I don't know, hatred and anger and that and things and bitterness and that and things and which was corroding me. And one of the reasons I still come to AA but not on such on a regular basis is that, you know, um, my thoughts can be just as intoxicating without alcohol. And also my emotions can be just as corrosive. And I've heard all of these things about um, um, from the flaws of Alcoholics Anonymous, from speakers, as I said, who had the spiritual courage, who talked about themselves. And I learnt more from people than just actually sitting down and studying books and things like that. Because um, in my early days, or probably in my mid-sobriety, about, you know, when I was about... Ten years or so, I actually realised that the only thing I really need to know about God is that I'm not God. It's as simple as that. Because when I let go and let God and I just get out of the road, because my ego takes over otherwise, because I'm such a control freak, I find that things just go simply, you know, and the path opens up. But when I'm in the way and then things I'm playing God, and I really, really kind of like think I've got it in control and that and things and you know or that I've got to I've got to fix it all up on God's behalf I create three times the confusion and poor God has to come along and you know clean up three times the mess so um actually I'm running out of t- out of um thought and I think that that's probably good um Chris said to me oh you're um, got 50 minutes to speak and I said I can't speak for that long she said of course you can and um I think it'd actually be really good humility if I couldn't, actually. <laughs> so I can look at it in the, the, the sense of a positive thing. Um, you know, it says that a step six separates the boys from the men, the men from the boys, and because it's ongoing eternal vigilance. Um, and it talks about, you know, that fear will say to you, don't look, you know, because you're too scared. And... Um, Pride will tell you that you don't have to look because you're not part of the problem. You're not like that. And I've applied these things. This is where the beauty of the steps has been because I've applied it to life. You know, it doesn't have to be just about uh, when I'm in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous or what I see as my alcoholism. And, you know, and my alcoholism isn't responsible for everything in my life. I don't just do things because I'm an alcoholic. I mean, I hear it in AA, I'll do this or do that because you're an alcoholic. And I say, I want to say no because you're such and such, you know, really. (laughs) Because that's what, no, I can hide behind all these banners and labels. 
And, you know, I'm actually a recovered alcoholic, as it says in the big book there. You know, that the, yeah, the first edition of the um, big book was written by the first hundred members who, has, who had seemingly recovered from this um, disease called alcoholism. And I've had, you know, people come to me in Adelaide, oh, you can't be recovered. Well, you mightn't be able to, darling, but I am, you know. And if I say I'm not recovered in that sense, and I'm talking about recovered I, um, in the sense that I don't have a drinking problem today, I've recovered from the alcohol, but I haven't recovered my, from myself, then I, what I'm admitting, I'm saying, is that there's a greater power than God, that alcohol is greater than God, you know. And um, I just feel as though I've had that drinking um, process relieved, which is really good, and, it, you know, it opens up new journeys, new vistas, new avenues, and... Um, Instead of spending my money on um, grog and cigarettes, which I used to do, because I wanted to be popular too when I drank. Uh, I was a public drinker in pubs and clubs, and they weren't all dives. Uh, but as I said, I, um, I couldn't stand my own company, and I needed people around me, and yet I felt lonely in a crowd. I've got to be around a 1,000 people and still feel intensely lonely. And so... Um, um, I'm not too sure what my point was in there. What's it, 10 minutes remaining? <laughs> um, you're feeling lonely. So this idea of God and things, and I can take this out, you know, and I have to work these steps in my life. Um, and one of the things too, um, you know, steps 10, 11, and 12, and then things, and I know that they're on Sunday, that's conscious contact with God, you know, praying only for the will of his, his will and the power to carry that out. I actually, um, I found that in my sobriety I need to cleanse my head, my mind, before I go to bed. Because if I go to bed with garbage in my head, I wake up with that. So, you know, I really have to do some meditation or contemplation. And what I've had to do is say, what's my role in this? You know, even though I want to strangle the other person, I actually have to say, well, what's my role in this? And who am I as a player in the process? And that's kind of given me some sort of... Um, Freedom from bondage of self. You know, this I-self-me. Um, I think that this is the greatest journey in the world that one could undertake, and I think that that's what we need in the world. We need these spiritual principles. And, you know, I, you know spirituality is absolutely, actually not the absence of pain. It's the ability to deal with it. You know, I think people, because of a religious connotation, get this idea that, um, you know, that people float on spirituality and they never have a problem and things like that. Well, you know, the great visionaries of the world as opposed to the elected leaders, because it's easy to be a leader, you can be elected appointed. But the great visionaries like Mahatma Gandhi and others, you know, um, he, um, he talked about the tyranny of the weak and things like that. He appealed to people, though, and he said, you know, be the change you want to see. Let it begin with me. But he didn't pretend that there were no problems or anything like that, and he didn't kind of walk around just, you know, uh, covering up the errors. He uncovered the error and then, you know, went through the process of liberating India in terms of independence. And these are the kind of people I look externally to, is people like Gandhi and uh, Aung San Suu Kyi and um, Martin Luther King. And, you know, when I was a so-called revolutionary at university... I used to hate their guts. I used to hate Gandhi. I think, oh, God, you know, peaceniks and all this type of thing. And, you know, the 60s, I'm a product of the rock and roll. You know, you're a sex, drug and rock and roll of the 60s, and I love them, you know. And you could go to excesses and all this type of thing, and it was really good at the time, but it took a toll on me later. 
So, you know, that's why basically, you know, today I'm here, you know. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm here because basically I'm not all there and I love it, you know. I don't want to be kind of like really straight and conservative and nice and things like that, you know. The tyranny of niceness, you know. Ah, you know, I used to work with people at Melbourne University. It was so nice, you know. They used to give me the... I better not say it. This has been recorded, isn't it? Yeah, you know. <laughs> and, you know, I love the idea of fear, you know, and I've heard in Al-Anon, you know, that, um, you know, fear stands for false evidence appearing real and false emotions appearing real. And I had an AA bloke come up to me and said, one night he said, it actually doesn't stand for any of those, Lily. And I said, what does it stand for? And he said, it stands for FL, FL, F, everything and run. <laughs> So, you know, which is basically what I want to do. So, you know, these deep-seated, they're almost, well, deep-seated defects of fear and, oh, you know, it's the opposite of love and, and things. These are the things I've had to deal with and this is where the steps have helped out. Um, and I don't say I've had a spiritual awakening. I mean, I've had some sort of awakening. And, you know, um, step seven mentions, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. And it says it's the first time that the word humility comes into play. And I've had to look at these words, you know. I see humility as the knowledge of my own limitations. And uh, it's not about being a doormat, though, either. Um, and I see that, you know, um, I've read a beautiful uh, quote on spirituality, and it's not an AA one, but it said, spirituality is the constant conscious contact with God, the knowing of God, you know, which is ever-present. And if I put a power greater than me, as I said, I don't have to be God. I don't have to play God. So it's been a grand journey, and I've loved it, and I have spoken for nearly 50 minutes, haven't I? My God, I can't believe it. Um, you know, all my life I wanted that 15 minutes of fame and stand up there and to be recognised and to be known and then things, and, you know, just totally out of whack. And today I can come here and I can actually say, um, you know... I just wanted to share with you um, warts and all in that sense, um, share my experience, strength and hope because I'm not an expert. And I'll tell you a wonderful joke about experts because I, I think that we need um, humour. There's some studies that suggest that we laugh something like 30% that less than we did 50 years ago. But, you know, there's a joke about the expert and uh, there's a plane to, about to crash and um, there's five people on board and there's, you know, there's really kind of... Um, Smart hosting. She jumps out and she says, okay, fellas, work out among yourselves. There's three parachutes left, four of you. I'm taking a parachute and jumping out. She grabs a parachute and jumps out. The first guy jumps up and he says, well, I'm the prime minister of the country, you know, with great humility and says, I'll have to take one because the country needs me. The other guy says, well, I'm an expert. The country obviously definitely needs me. There's one parachute left and there's an um, old, older priest and a younger hippie and the younger older priest says, listen, son, you take that parachute and jump out quickly. Because I've had my life, yours is just beginning. Take that parachute and jump out quickly. And the hippie says, oh, that won't be necessary, Father. Didn't you notice the expert took my backpack? <laughs> and that's what happens when I think... And that, that joke's actually on me. I'm not against expertise, but when I become an expert, I'm really up myself, you know? And I wanted to come here tonight to say, you know, in a way... And I can't believe that 50 minutes have gone. My God, as I said, I'm just starting to get into a canter, a trot, let alone a gallop. And I just wanted to say, you know, this is me, warts and all. And there is hope, you know. There is hope. It's just the most wonderful journey. And in many ways, it's just beginning. 
I was talking to her, and I'll end on this, because, you know, when I was drinking, I had all the answers, but I never had perspective. And I was talking to an AA member yesterday, and it was quite cold in Adelaide and that things, and I was cosied up, um, sitting there with a rug around me and that things. And I said, um, you know, I have no right to whinge. I actually don't have any woes. And the world's woes, what I have, are nothing. They're insignificant. And what I need to remember, because there's the United Nations statistics which says that if you have a warm bed to sleep in, a roof over your head, and enough food to eat, you're in the top 7% of the world's population. Now, how? If that doesn't give me perspective and gratitude, I don't know what does, you know? And I have to remember these things all the time too because I want, 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 you know? I mean, the first thing I did when Diane picked me up at the airport is I'm walking past a shop, eh, at the airport. I want that bag, you know? <laughs> and the woman sold it to me because I'm a sucker, you know? She said, well, it's an Italian handbag. It's really beautiful, da-da-da, and it's, we've only got one. It may not be here on Sunday night when you come back. <laughs> she just traded on my fear, you know? <laughs> because I might be less without that Italian handbag. But anyway, and I don't need it. But anyway, you know, basically I'm here because I'm not all there, and I love it, you know? And um, you can be a loony um, and still exist in Alcoholics Anonymous and... Sometimes, um, you know, and I've met wonderful emotional and spiritual relatives and some of them have made indelible footprints on my heart. And I always used to love the way Barb spoke too, you know, when she, I was here and at Carlton and things because, you know, I wasn't alone. I thought, there's another loony <laughs> around the joint. And I'm not terminally unique, but I can still enjoy life, you know, and it's wonderful. And I would say don't quit five minutes before the miracle. Because it's something I wanted it to do and you just never know what's around the corner. Not just in sobriety, but in life, you know. And as I said, AA not only changed my life, it gave me life. And today I live a rich and abundant life. Not in a material sense, because that's external. And I'm not knocking that because we have to have a minimum of material stuff. But today I totally enjoy my own company. And that's a big difference from when I was drinking because I could never stand me. As I heard in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, somebody say, you know, it's uh, interesting, you know, the only person I think of is myself and yet I can't stand myself, you know. And I used to think about myself all the time. And if I can kind of have eternal vigilance in terms of my thinking, okay, thank you for sharing, please shut up. No, it says, uh, thank you for sharing. Please finish out, you know. See, that's me thinking. That's my head. I must be going overboard. But anyway, thanks for being here for me because I need you all. Thank you. This share and other shares like it are available from our website. Steps Weekend dot aa group dot org dot au thanks for letting us share